Old Days Podcast. My name is Maggie Coomer. And I'm Jasmine Brand. And we'd like to start off by saying thank you so much to those of you who've already listened to our first two episodes. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and drop us a five-star review if you feel so inclined. Let's crack into today's case. On June 3rd, 1937, political activist Juliet Stewart Points disappeared after leaving her apartment at the American Women's Association Clubhouse in Manhattan, New York. It would be several months before she was reported missing. Other than an orderly apartment with nothing out of place, there was no hint of her whereabouts or any evidence related to her disappearance. Wild speculation surrounded her disappearance, but most now agree that Juliet was executed by Soviet secret police for fear that she knew too much. This is the story of Juliet Stewart Points, the feminist communist Soviet spy you've never heard of. Today, we can share our views on equal rights while sometimes being met with opposition and can still find overwhelming support of like-minded people through the lens of social media, our friends, and occasionally family. Juliet, on the other hand, lived in a time in which she was in the minority with her views on equal rights and civil rights. And though she took a wrong turn somewhere and ended up aiding an increasingly oppressive and bloody regime, I think it's obvious that Juliet believed that she was fighting on the right side of history. And when she realized she wasn't, she tried to make a change. She tried to leave. And for that, she was almost certainly executed. The sources we utilize for this episode include fantastic information about Juliet's early life from the Bernard Archives and Special Collections. Uh, Barnard is actually the, the university that Juliet attended, and we're going to get into that in just a second. Another source that we utilized was a 1990 article from a, a publication known as The Grand Store by Dorothy Gallagher called Disappeared. She reconstructed the details surrounding Juliet's disappearance after going through the 200-page FBI uh, case file on, on Juliet. According to a blog post that I found, though, this file, this particular file, is still very difficult to get your hands on. Uh, they're not fully releasing it to the public. At least the FBI isn't fully releasing it. There's also a documentary called American Reds, The Rise and Fall of the American Communist Party, and that is fantastic. And we'll put all of these in our show notes for you. So when we were doing research to figure out what our next topic was going to be, and Jasmine Jasmine found her name, and neither of us had heard of her. And What was your first impression when you started reading about her? What was the first thing that stuck in your mind that's that you, you said, yes, this is the one I want to talk about? Well, I thought it was interesting, the idea of feminism and communism together, because, of course... You always get a bad connotation when communism is brought up. It's the wrong thing. It's the bad thing. We had the Red Scare. And I just thought, well, how interesting. What is the connection there? There's a massive connection that I never knew about. And so I really wanted to explore that side of history. And Juliet was a great figure to be able to do that with. For me, in the past, what I've always imagined a Russian Soviet spy looking like is like some powerful vixen named Natasha who's just like slicing through you know information and and collecting information and seducing men to get it and I think that this kind of busts up that narrative even though we as we've I think we discussed 
uh, they still try to do that. She's just a really interesting figure. I think there's a lot to her that you don't see typically, you know, in, in people like this. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I found a quote from her and you probably read through it, but she said that it required considerable courage to take a decided stand for women's suffrage. And that really resonated because it's still hard to stand up for different rights. And we're not fighting for our suffrage anymore. But there's other things that still aren't where, well, there are other things that still aren't where they should be, not just for women, but for all kinds of people. Um, And it is hard. It is hard even when we have a big group around us that support those ideals because the other side of it is so vicious <laughs> against just basic rights, really. So I understood where she was coming from in that quote. Juliet Stewart Points was born on November 25th, 1886. She's a Nebraskan. Shout out to all her fellow Midwesterners out there. Her father was either a lawyer or an accountant, depending on what source you're looking at, and her mother was a school teacher. Juliet's parents separated in her youth, and her mother took her and her siblings to New Jersey. So if that's true, she was raised by a single mother in the 1890s. Now, if we have any single moms listening right now, I'm sure they could tell you how difficult that position is. Now, add not having any rights, being disenfranchised, I can only imagine She earned her bachelor's degree from Bernard College in 1907. She was the freshman class treasurer. She was the president of her sophomore class, secretary of the Bernard Union, president of the Undergraduate Association, chairman of student council for her senior year, sister in the Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority, member of the philosophy club, the classical club, the athletic association, the Christian association, and the sophomore dance committee. She also dabbled in school theater, participated on the debate team, and, of course, she was voted most popular in her class in 1907. An inscription next to her yearbook photo reads, At her command, the palace learned to rise. Jasmine, I would have hated this woman's guts in high school. The (laughs) envy is strong with this one. Now, let me read a quote from Juliet's valedictorian speech, because, of course... Not only did she participate in all those student organizations, she was also at the top of her class. We must be individuals to stand or fall in our own strength or weakness. Let us remember that our main stumbling block will be self-satisfaction. Let us seek for happiness, yes, but not a contented, unintelligent happiness, but rather that which comes from the joy of striving whether the goal be won or lost. During her years at college, she became interested in suffrage, labor unions, feminism, socialism. She helped found the suffrage club at her college. In 1912, she actually writes a letter to her former classmates declaring herself as still being a feminist and a socialist. After graduating, Juliet becomes a special agent for the U.S. Immigration Commission, and this is a special committee that looks into the effects, origins, and consequences of recent immigration and lasts for about three years, from 1907 until 1910. Now, in the middle of all that, she will return to Barnard, but this time to teach in 1909, and she will be an assistant in the history department. By the tail end of 1910, she's in Oxford. She's earned her master's degree from Columbia. 
Then she visits London, where she'll meet Dr. Friedrich Franz Ludwig Glazer. His family were wealthy industrialists, and no one can confirm if her communist views were influenced by Dr. Glazer or if they bonded over their similar ideals. She would marry the doctor after returning to the U.S. in 1913, but she chose not to change her name. Instead, she changed the spelling to reflect a Eastern European style. So from points, P-O-I-N-T-S, to points, P-O-Y-N-T-Z. And with this marriage, she'll actually void her American citizenship. And this is a pretty big point that... Well, us ladies, we don't have to think about today. In fact, in 1907, a act of Congress will be passed that says that a woman's nationality is defined by her husband's. Fun fact, uh, that rule would actually remain in effect until Congress overturned it in 1922. Unfortunately, this romance wouldn't last. They'll split after about three or four years, but they remain legally married until he died in 1935. And I think the reason she doesn't go in for divorce is because she just doesn't care. I mean, she doesn't take his name, which would have been very common at that time. And I think she probably just thought that the whole institution was kind of irrelevant. She was doing bigger things. She didn't have time to mess around with divorce and Honestly, why would she? And also, you know, a big a big view in the within the Communist Party is that traditional bonds of matrimony are essentially there to elevate the the husband over the wife, uh, and it it leads to uh, oppression, wide scale oppression of women. Uh, so you know, it, keeping in line with communist views on this, she probably wouldn't have been too concerned with the actual institution of marriage. I'm actually a little surprised that she got married anyway, to begin with. In the Dorothy Gallagher article, she makes a point of mentioning that as Julia got older, she wasn't particularly attractive, but was still accustomed to having male suitors. And I thought that was pretty interesting because why is that relevant? Why is her level of attractiveness relevant? And will we see this in an article about a man? I just don't know. Juliet will return to Barnard yet again in 1914, um, and she actually writes a piece for the Barnard Bear in this year, and she states that she is the class of 07 or 1907, and she will describe the membership of the suffrage club. Now, back when they started her senior year, she describes them as a intrepid few regarded as queer and lacking in balance and altogether abnormal, comparing the attitude in 1914 as the world outside, where suffrage is not only tolerated, but has, alas, actually become fashionable. And she also says that the Barnard public is in need of more education on the general economic and social position of women and the history of the women's movement in particular. In 1915, Juliet becomes the director of the Workers' University. She is getting deep into trade union work around this time. And by 1917, she actually becomes educational director for the entire International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. That was one of the largest unions in the United States at the time. 
All of what she sees and experiences during these years lead her to helping found the American faction of the Communist Party in 1919. In the 1920s, Juliet ran for office two times. The first, she ran for Congress in 1924 under the Workers' Party ticket, uh, a.k.a. the Communist Party. That was the the name the Communist Party was running under at, uh, at that time. And in 1928, she ran for Attorney General of New York State, which... What a beast. A, a female communist in the 1920s, and she is just trying to get into the political arena. I mean, mad respect for this, for this woman. All right. So what exactly is communism? Okay. Uh, the definition of communism is a political theory derived from Karl Marx. Anyone heard of the Communist Manifesto? It advocates class war and leading to a society in which all property is publicly owned and each person's work is paid according to their abilities and needs. So wait, what is it? What is socialism? Right? We said that Juliet joined the Socialist Party in 1909. Well, socialism is a political and economic theory of social organization which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. Per Marxist theory, this is a transitional social state between the overthrow of capitalism and the realization of communism. So before I get into the brief history of communism, because there's a lot of complicated stuff going on there, I have a quote for you from Theodore Draper, who is a political writer and historian, and he describes the amount of information in this way. He says that communists have written so much about themselves that no congressional committee is necessary to force them to testify about the really significant political and social aspects of their movement. Communist source material, of course, contains innumerable traps for the uninitiated and the unweary. And I think that about sums it up. And all of the research that me and Maggie have been doing, we are overwhelmed with information. So I'm going to break it down for you with a very, very brief history. In 1848, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels will write the Communist Manifesto. By 1864, there is a massive conference. The International Working Men's Association is formed out of that conference, and that takes place in London. And Karl Marx, of course, is in attendance. And this will be a watershed moment for him. He'll become revered intellectually after this, and he'll be able to spread his views throughout Europe. By the late 1860s, the international, or the first international, as it's often referred to, will boost the U.S. following. It'll move to the United States, and they are welcomed by American socialists, like Juliet. They will move their headquarters to New York City in 1872. And this international will rename itself or morph itself into what becomes known as the Working Men's Association in 1876. So fast-forwarding a little bit to 1919, Juliet will actually help establish the Communist Party of the United States, also known as the CPUSA. And within three months, the CPUSA will report that they have somewhere between 50,000 and 60,000 members. So are immensely popular. 
So where was all this interest coming from? And a lot of it is coming from the labor movements that are already happening across the United States, but also coming from an interest in civil rights and women's rights. And this is because the Communist Party, in the United States at least, advertises itself as, well, as though it's for everyone. It advertises specifically in the United States as being anti-racist, saying that racism is actually a byproduct of capitalism. And as communism is the evolution past capitalism, they are going to challenge segregation and come up with this slogan of, Black and white unite and fight. They will also challenge misogyny and fight for the rights of workers and the unemployed. And this ideology is actually going to gain even more popularity during the Great Depression. I believe also the Communist Party is fighting for unemployment insurance. So being able to apply for unemployment like many of us are doing during this this pandemic 20, you know, year 2020, we're having to apply for unemployment for the first times in our entire careers. Well, this is where that movement starts. Despite the utter failings of Stalinist communism, the basic ideals of communism appeal to many oppressed and disenfranchised groups. Now, at its most idealistic, communism attempts to embody total equality, which is why it appeals to feminists and people who are fighting for social justice. But, as is usually the case, Human nature cannot resist subverting and perverting good intentions. As they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The Communist Party represented itself as resistance to oppression. And this is going to gain traction and lots of early success, especially with United Workers. So all those unions that come together to form this, and they're going to work towards change. And in doing so, they gained tens of thousands of members. Unfortunately, though, that does not last. The Communist Party factions off. Uh, they have lots of disagreements. And then changes that are coming from Russia from the top down really splinters people off in different directions with whether they agree on what's happening or not. She's actually in Russia in 1928 when Stalin gets rid of Trotsky. And Trotsky's going to spend the rem- remainder of his life until he's assassinated in exile. But... Trotsky has advocated for perpetual revolution to advance communism. Stalinists advocated for beefing up communist Russia to propel communism within a strong centralized state. Sort of a if you build it, they will come mentality. Uh, More on this in our next episode. Trotsky labeled Stalin as a dictator. And what we'll see in the next couple of years, Stalin's great purge will begin. Let's talk a little bit about Juliet's work with the Communist Party. All right. So as we said, she joins in 1919. She attempts to make a name for herself on the public stage. She's running for Congress. She's running for Attorney General of New York State, all under the Communist Party ticket. But we see a change. And this change starts in the late 1920s. Juliet's going to begin to apply for passports. She actually applies for five passports between 1928 and 1936, citing that her former passports had been lost, and she's applying with alternate names. 
she applies for a passport with the name Glazer, which was the name of her husband. She applies for passports with her uh, the, the spelling of her name as P-O-I-N-T-S. Now, either Juliet was the most irresponsible person with her passport that has ever existed, or she is utilizing these passports for other members of Soviet intelligence. Maggie just mentioned the Great Purge, so I want to go a little more into that so we can really understand what Juliet was seeing. And this is going to come after years of Stalin building his power within the Soviet Union. At first, when he comes to power, well, it's not just him. It's led as a collective leadership. And little by little, Stalin will take more and more and more of that power until he becomes the dictator Trotsky accused him of being. Famine in the early 1930s will lead to unrest due to millions, reportedly up to 3.9 million deaths within the Soviet Union. Now, this coincides with Hitler's rise to power in 1933 and the same year that Roosevelt is elected in the U.S. with a growing opposition to communism from, well, both Germany and the United States. So a change of branding by Russia and by communist parties all across the world is to, well, market themselves essentially or present themselves as being anti-fascist and fighting for democracy. And this will actually work for a little while. However, Stalin's tactics become pretty well known by the late 1930s because this is when we enter that period of time known as the Great Purge or the Great Terror. And it actually, on paper, just lasts two years, but Juliet is seeing the beginning of this. Over these two years, and this is 1936 to 1938, anywhere from 680,000 people to 1.2 million people would die. And those are people who go missing, anyone who opposed Stalin, perceived political criminals, enemies of the people, traitors, and then he'll actually move on to minorities within Soviet Russia. So a lot of Soviet citizens with Polish origin, peasants who he considered too rich to be peasants. And these are actually like the bourgeoisie class, so middle class people he's targeting. And he will label all of these people as enemies of the working class. Anyone who is even suspected of opposing the government is also taken away and very rarely seen again. If the accused is not executed, they would be sent to the gulag and essentially worked to death. Stalin creates an environment of suspicion and fear, never hesitating for too long to remove anyone suspected of wavering support. She left the party in 1934. The definitive reason is currently unknown. But it's safe to assume this move was to lessen her visibility in the public arena so she could move information back and forth between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. It's said that she was looking for uh, scientific information to feed the Soviet Union. During a trip to Moscow in late 1936, she's l- going to witness the purge. And this is the widespread removal of anyone Stalin perceived as disloyal, many people she had known and worked with over the years. They reportedly questioned her own loyalty, and though she managed to convince them and gain passage back to the United States, 
That damage was done. Juliet started planning a way out. Much of the information we have about the last months of Juliet's life come from a statement given by an anti-Stalinist named Carlo Tresca. Tresca claimed that when he spoke to Juliet during a chance meeting in May of 1937, she told him her trip to Moscow in late 1936 had shaken her faith in Stalinist Russia. Tresca was apparently a staunch anti-Stalinist, which would explain why Juliet felt comfortable divulging her unhappiness with the current Stalinist Soviet Union. She said her own loyalty had been questioned in Moscow, and though she'd been able to convince them otherwise, the experience changed her. Her loyalty was indeed shaken. The following is a quote from Tresca's statement given to U.S. Attorney Francis Mahoney. She had turned from great admiration to great disgust for the way things are done in and from Russia. The Stalinites had to destroy her because she knew too much. Though upon her return she was still a member of Soviet intelligence, she now had a time limit to to decide her next move. She was expected back in Moscow in September of 1937. She had a return boat ticket. In May of 1937, Juliet reportedly told her friend Sophie Theus at lunch one day that she had, quote, extricated herself from her former connections and was now going to do some writing. And allegedly the writing that she's doing is to expose the Communist Party. So this was dangerous territory for Juliet to be getting into. Right. She's getting into the territory of not just leaving the party she's creeping towards defection and people have been killed for a lot less according to tresca a man named sanchno epstein juliet's on again off again lover of nearly two decades was the one who lured her out into the street the night she disappeared the telephone operator at her hotel confirmed that juliet received a phone call just before she disappeared tresca says He saw Epstein in New York in early 1937, and this confirms his presence in the U.S. Apparently, Epstein fled the U.S. in August of 1937 under the assumed name of Sam Stone. The FBI confirms this last bit. Apparently, Juliet and Epstein met, according to Tresca, they met when they were both agents for Soviet Russia in the late 19-teens which sort of contradicts the timeline that we've set up, but we don't know for sure. Now, no one hears from her following June 3rd. Her lawyer, a man named Lieberman, said he tried to reach her by phone, but knowing what he did about her intelligence activities, he didn't report her missing. He didn't want to get her into a sticky situation with American authorities. So six months go by before the story finally breaks in the New York Times in December of 1937. Now, the Communist Party will actually deliver a a, a statement on her disappearance. Uh, There are two statements, actually. Uh, The first one is printed in what's uh, a newspaper called The Daily Worker. It is as follows. Miss Points was a member of our party for a number of years, terminating her membership towards the end of 1934. She left the party without any rift, but apparently to occupy herself with other interests. Since then, we have not followed her activities and are quite uninformed as to her working during this past period and her interest or present whereabouts. Now, the National Membership Department of the Communist Party denied even knowing who Juliet was. 
They said, quote, We have no record of the woman as a member of the Communist Party and no knowledge of her whereabouts for 10 years. Now, I'd say that's suspicious to say the least, right? What do, what do you think, Jasmine? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it screams cover up, doesn't it? And I know we're naturally inclined to be suspicious of all things Soviet, but to not even know her and she was a founding member. And I think even in our research in in this case, we found it really difficult to substantiate her within the party in things we knew she was doing based on other accounts. Yeah, she's really not in much verbiage about the establishment of the CPUSA. The information we got pertain or er, uh, pertaining to her involvement in the establishment of the party came from her own biographies and articles that were written about her, which is curious to say the least. But I think this all goes back to if she's a Soviet, a member of Soviet intelligence, she's a spy. She doesn't want to attract attention. So I don't know. It all kind of makes sense to me. Why? But there's just a lot that we that we don't know that's just been pushed into utter obscurity. Yeah, to me, it's really like she didn't just go missing. Her entire legacy went missing as well. A story that makes me question as much as anything in this story has made me question the kind of character that Juliet Points had was a story about a woman known as Mary Delmar. And this story is recounted in the Gallagher article. So in May, uh, on May 28th, 1936, a woman identified as Mary Delmar leapt from a train that was headed from Chicago to New York she left all of her personal effects, her suitcase. The only thing she was reported to have taken was a pocket knife and a picture of a young boy. She runs until she drops. And the story goes, she ends up being found by a farmhand who takes him back to his employer. It's a Pennsylvania farmer. And she is going to essentially seek shelter with the, this farming family for about two weeks until she attempts suicide via a gunshot wound to the head. Now, this attempt was botched, and Mary was la she landed herself in the hospital with a damaged eye and some memory loss. Now, we know now that this woman's name was Rika Brockowitz. And while she's at the hospital, a woman named Amy McMaster is going to come and collect her. All right. It turns out that Juliet Points was paying McMaster's $25 per week to watch this woman, Barakowitz. But Barakowitz's behavior becomes increasingly erratic. She becomes uh, uh, more belligerent. And so uh, McMaster's is going to end up dropping her at a hospital uh, in Philadelphia. And Juliet is going to come and visit her. Now, it's reported that at the sight of points, Barakowitz became hostile, belligerent, agitated, pretty much just started flying off the handle. Uh, the story ends with Points booking passage for Barakowitz on a ship heading back towards Europe uh, with the intent of handing her over to uh, some friends of Poland. Well, what I was thinking while you were telling me that story is it sounds exactly like the depictions that we see in movies and TV shows of how you would respond if a Soviet spy found you and was going to send you off to somewhere that you were never going to be seen from or heard from again. Um, so honestly, it, it 
puts a little bit of doubt in my mind about Juliet. On the other hand, could she have been helping her? Or is that just my wanting of her? Is that just my desire for Juliet to be a good character (laughs) in all of this? Right. Yeah. Is that just us projecting? Oh, no, we're going to give her the benefit of the doubt because we we like her. You know, we, we, we have enjoyed learning about her. But it just, in that story, she could have a couple of different motivations. Number one, sure. She could just be sending Barakowitz home to get help, as she said, from friends of Poland. Uh, But I take it from the reaction that Barakowitz has when she sees points for the first time in the hospital that she didn't want to be found especially not by points. And so what probably happened, it sounds like Barakowitz was trying to get out. She was trying to uh, escape the, from Soviet intelligence and points sent her back. So I can't imagine anything good happened after this, but it does make me think that maybe this Barakowitz was being framed as a traitor and or traitor to the Soviets. And so point stepped in Juliet stepped in and and protected their interests in that moment but it's interesting that in a few months after that uh Juliet is going to become disillusioned with the Soviet Union now as we mentioned she witnesses uh some of the purge trials people that she had worked with for decades were now being systematically executed or banished to to work camps so Within a few months of this, it, maybe this had an effect on her, you know? So, I don't know. I, I don't think there's ever one tipping point. I think it's usually a, a culmination of a bunch of different events that push somebody to a, a breaking point. And maybe just seeing those purge trials at the end of 1936 just is what sent her over the edge. Yeah, and we can't know because there's no firsthand account of what she's thinking or going through with all of this, or even a whole account of what she does. And this is one story. That's one person. How many other people did she essentially track down on behalf of the Soviet Union? One more theory behind her disappearance that I want to go over that comes out a few years after she vanishes is... Uh, Again, (laughs) it again ties her to yet another romantic relationship. And I take this with a grain of salt because, again, like me and Maggie have been saying, her entire story is overshadowed with stories like this. And the story is that she was having a relationship, a romantic relationship with a commander in the Red Army. And as the purge goes on or gets into, I guess, more of a stride, um, this commander is accused of being a traitor, accused of being pro-Trotsky and anti-Stalin and is going to, well, stand trial. And before he stands trial, the GPU apparently find Juliet and kidnap her so she can't say anything either against the trial or speak out publicly against, well, what is about to be the Great Purge. And she's never seen from again. Now, the commander that was standing trial, he is found guilty and is executed. And 
well, that's it. No one ever hears from her again. And while this story sounds like it could be credible, I, I believe it. I just, I think there's so much more to Juliet than just she was someone's lover and got in the way. I think she knew a lot. I think she was much more involved. And while it's certainly a theory that's gone around over the last, well, 90 years or so, um, I I don't think it's the only answer if it's even part of it yeah absolutely and i i thought it was really interesting that when i when i went through her school record and i see just this amazing participant this woman was involved in everything you you know even though no one's telling you this you know she has an opinion about everything and she wants to be involved in everything that was really impressive. And the fact that she turns out to be a Soviet spy really just ratcheted up my intrigue. You know, I just ever since I was a little kid, I have been so fascinated with espionage and spies and what was this big bad thing known as the Soviet Union. I mean, I was born in 1989. I was born the same month that the Berlin Wall fell. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that in my formative years, there were things being said about events, about the Soviet Union, about the Cold War. I mean, this is a, you know, several decade long period that I feel like scarred the American psyche. It, it sort of it changed the American public that just that level of fear of, you know, some sort of atomic attack that could happen at any moment. You're. You have, you know, drills in kids' uh, classes, you know, kids' classrooms. Get under the desk. Protect yourself from the atom bomb, which, you know, a questionable. However, you know, you need to soothe people's fears, I guess. But I just, that was always what I thought of when I thought of the Soviet Union. So to have this woman who was a suffragist fighting for uh, the right to vote, the female right to vote in the United States, to have her go over to the side of communism and then in turn begin to spy for the Soviet Union. I just, I feel like there's a connection there between wanting to elevate United States citizens and then she decides to spy for the Soviets. So obviously, unless her motives have just gone really sinister, I feel like she was acting in what she thought was the best interest for at least her comrades, you know, her female fellow citizens of the United States. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm being a little too lenient on a spy, <laughs> but I just I don't know. She just she's such a complex figure and we just don't know truly what her motivations were, you know? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And she is complex. And most of our historical figures are. I think that's the point here is Juliet's not an easy one to put into a all good or all bad category like we like to do with so many. And I think that's particularly pertinent now, especially when we're looking at who do we essentially give hero worship to and why. And a lot of these figures are more complicated than our historical record has shown. For example, back to Juliet and what she's doing, something we haven't really gotten time to get into, but we will on our Patreon episode, is her involvement with that group. What what were they called? The International... The International Labor Defense. Yes. Yeah. So that was a group 
you know, mostly for the black community. They're representing political prisoners and oppressed peoples. She is very involved with that, which I find really interesting because, again, in the 1920s and 1930s, the state of things for, you know, anyone of color in the United States, the state of things still for anyone of color in the United States, but this is before civil rights. So that further complicates her as a person and where we're putting her on this moral scale. And I don't think we can really judge her. I don't think we can really judge many historical figures in that same sense. I don't know. I'm rambling now. (laughs) Well, no, you're right. We just, we can't, no matter how much we read, no matter how many people we interview, it's not a firsthand account and so, ju- you know, to, to pass judgment on figures of the past, it's easy to do, right? When we have these shiny 21st century goggles on, we can see oppression and see the bad stuff in history that we're like, how the hell could these people have not known any better? But the truth is, is that we just don't understand the time and the pressures and you know I just think that we've got to kind of take our own opinions with a grain of salt and just you know construct the greatest the greatest picture that we can the most inclusive and comprehensive picture so we can try at least try to understand the past so just something to leave you all with to think about is a quote Juliet wrote um, in an article that she published and it reads as follows They, the practical men, have had their way in the world and not the visionaries and the idealists and the enthusiasts. And it is they who have brought the world to its present pass. The trouble with the practical man is that it is never the obvious that appeals to him. That lacking vision, he all too often fails in all he undertakes. I think she's saying that the people who essentially are in charge here have lost their vision and ideology and enthusiasm for the world in which they're charged with taking care of. And in losing that vision that they have failed in while propelling societies is kind of how I read that. What about you? Uh, I, ow, sorry, my beanbag is swallowing me up. <laughs> I think that, I think what she's saying is practical men. I think what she means by practical men are the ones who want to keep society. They want to keep the status quo going. They think that the status quo can be, can work for everyone, or at least there's nothing wrong with how it's currently working. And I think she, she thinks that those, those are the type of people who are lacking in the idealism, the enthusiasm, the vision to see past what is right in front of them. I think what she's implying is that this is this practical approach to life is always doomed to fail because there will be people who are who are the idealists and the enthusiasts who will contradict that and inspire others who are disenfranchised and oppressed to take action to make it, you know, push towards a more perfect reality. Does that perfect reality exist? Does a utopian society exist? Well, we'll talk a little bit about that in a couple of different episodes. So that's what I think it means. 
I just added that in there because I I don't know if you saw my addition to our case list, but there's a dude named Owen who is like essentially the father of American communism. And he attempts to set up a utopian. He buys a town in Indiana and attempts to establish a utopian society. But within two years, it's it's bad news bears. So, yes, I did a class in college on utopian societies. And I remember that one. And they have all the isn't it in the like 40s or 50s? They have all like the really perfect posters and um, it ends up all being half built. Is that the place? Actually, no. So that's that's wild country. That's there's a documentary about that one on I think about that one on um, Netflix. But this is this is from the, the 1830s or the 1840s. And Owen was a Welsh industrialist. And he before he went full on socialism, he was just an advocate uh, for workers rights. And he he coined the phrase eight, eight hours of work, eight hours of rest, eight hours of play. And and so that's kind of the basis of our current American way of life at the moment, uh, which is pretty interesting. But he made the jump and like came out as a full on socialist in like the 1830s. And all his friends who thought were like, oh, man, he's so cute with his, you know, forward thinking policies about workers and stuff. were like, oh, shit, like we can't. <laughs> this guy's crazy. He's going to ruin everything. And so, yeah, we, we're going to do an episode about him. He was he's pretty dope. So. So thank you all so much. Please like and share us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at the good old days pod. Also coming up, we'll be releasing a companion episode to this on the history of American communism. You can find us at patreon.com slash the good old days pod. Our email address is the good old days pod at gmail.com. Please send us questions, comments, and episode ideas if they come to you. They're always welcome. And we will see y'all next week. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone.